Hey, everybody. I know most of you out there like making money. I can hear the fingers rubbing together right now. But here's a really cool opportunity I wanted to share with you guys, and that's driving with Uber. Now, Uber is that popular smartphone app that connects riders with drivers. So, you know, as for me, I take Uber a bunch. I take it to work. I take it to the studio. I take it to pick up kids. I take it on date night. Most of the times I'm in an Uber, I have an amazing conversation with a lot of the drivers that are there. They're always interesting people from all around the world. Um, some things I've learned just in having conversation is that they love being their own boss. It's a great way to be an entrepreneur. If you're a student, it's a great way to go to school, have a part-time job, use your own vehicle, make some money. Even if you're a parent, it's a great way to get around and in between taking kids to school and to camp and to soccer practice, uh, you can always find some time to make some extra cash. So, So you've got a car and a license. Put them both to work for you today and start earning serious, life-changing money. Sign up to Drive with Uber by visiting drivewithuber.com. That's drivewithuber.com, drivewithuber.com, and tell them Innovation Crush sent you. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another installment of Innovation Crush. I am your gracious host, Chris Denson. Uh, In case you're tuning in for the first time, you should know that this show is all things innovation, marketing, ideas, creativity, people who are inventing and reinventing the way we're doing things. Um, And today we have have a really big show. I I mean that uh, quite literally. Uh, King Drew, how are you? I'm well. How are you? You are well. Uh, I'm good. Mm. I'm pretty good. Uh, Andrew McGregor, also uh, referred to by your friends as Drew. Yes. So which I don't know which one I get to call you today, but I'm going to go with Drew. I just I feel like we're we're friends. Yeah. <laughs> you can remove my royal moniker. So. Yes. I, and I'm surprised I didn't see the crown. Well, did, did, is there a crown though? How about that? Uh, there are many crowns, and I, I was going to wear it, but I knew we would have headphones. So I think it's rude mm. to the crown to remove the crown. Yeah, once it's tough. You put it on. Uh, you know when I like when I watch like hip hop radio on YouTube, and it's mm. like they always have hats on. I don't know how you do the hat and a do rag and a bandana and headphones. Um, it's, it's pretty complicated. Yeah, there's an art to that. I'll, I'll look into it. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of wearing many hats, huh? yes. Look at what I see. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, you wear a ton of them. Yes. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to try to abbreviate and uh, give us sort of the the 90 second version of uh, who Andrew McGregor is. Cool. Um, yeah. Basically, what I do and think and feel is I invent solutions to humanitarian problems and then start organizations and companies that help solve them. Um, this began. This kind of part of my my life's journey began about. Eight years ago, when with a couple of friends, I started an organization called the Tiziano Project, um, and that teaches journalism to people living in war zones in difficult parts of the world and parts of the world that don't have much exposure, including Indian reservations in America and South wow. Central LA and stuff like that, as well as Rwanda and Mogadishu, Somalia, and parts of DR Congo. Yeah. Um, and then from that, uh, I because once you start a company, you know it's a, it's a power. It's like, haha! I can start more companies, and they can do more good things. And then <laughs> more the power. The second company I started was very much inspired by Paul Newman salad dressing. Um, Paul Newman has a whole line of salad dressing that just benefits a few environmental causes he supports. So I was like, oh, a product that supports an associated charity. Neat. Right. So kind of with that inspiration, I with a friend started a company called Graphation Comics. And that creates comic books that support associated charities. 
Uh, so, for example, we have a comic that we're helping to create coming up that's based on the story of this woman who grew up in East L.A. It's her brother's story, and then her brother, after serving three terms, committed suicide. And it's the comic book's going to be about him and his life, and the comic will support uh, charities that advocate for veterans' rights wow. and work against veteran suicide. There's a little-known statistic that an average of 22 veterans kill themselves every day. Uh, every day? Every day, yeah. So you do the math on that, and that's that's thousands of yeah. soldier corpses in America from suicide. So that's so that's wow. what, that's our next kind of big philanthropic comic that's coming up. But yeah, that's the idea is that I'm, I'm – how do you make that depressed. enjoyable? Right. Um, from a, from a, from an entertainment standpoint, right? Uh, like <laughs> enjoy I I love I, I have a belief in the everyday superhero, right? So like superheroes all around us and you can find them and glorify them in comic books. Um and I take great joy in that and also in telling these stories and there's a real dignity and empowerment in allowing people and helping people to tell their narratives. When it's often shut down. Um, So in the case of like East L.A. veterans, you know, they're in East L.A. anyway. So it's not like the greatest amplified voice in the world. And then a lot of people from that community have served this country. And then to have kind of deficiencies in mental health services for veterans that's contributing to 22 suicides a day. um, It's a huge problem. So there's a a great joy, I feel, in kind of assisting so the joy comes from like, and I would assume that comes out through the work. Like, you know, and I'll stick with this just for a second. Mm-hmm. But the, you know, this idea of a comic book in my, in my head, I go like comic humor, but I know that's not what comic books are always. But just this idea of like presenting this in an entertaining light, like what you know, is there sort of a creative creative process that you take to it, and like tones and beats and to get the message out, but also um, like just make it digestible, fun, you right. know, cool so entertainment. Sh- she's writing the story, and so she has keynotes of her brother's life that she wants to right. be included. And so to make it comic booky, um, we're considering entering or inserting kind of fantasy realms, like do and have like supernatural moments or like. The ghost of his brothers are assisting him at various points in his journey, and then he, you know, be, helps his brothers from beyond the grave type of thing. So to kind of give it those right fantasy elements, <clears throat> kind of remove, give it, it a couple of layers of separation from reality <laughs> in a sense, r- but r- also just like make it cool. Yeah, to make it cool and um, kind of fit it within the the tropes and archetypes that the comic book reader is accustomed to. Um, we're, we're playing with, but things like that would come into play. I'm not sure what it'll be for this specific comic book, but right. uh, his sister is writing it, and <clears throat> so we're just kind of guiding that story and then connecting that story, like just doing the business know of, like here's how you establish an right. entity that'll like fund these entities, and like is that an umbrella foundation that you would channel the money to, and blah blah, blah and stuff like that. So yeah. So I like a you know when I go down your list of achievements, uh, you know there's photography, journalism, chess boxing is yeah. a thing you're well known for. Um, this comic book stuff, you know, and you mentioned a minute ago like there's this thrill of creating an entity, creating a cut. Like where is the you know. Where is the the passion point for you? I get the problem solving part of it, you know, for the from the philanthropic perspective, but from the actual making it happen, uh-huh. like is it like what's the thrill of the the hunt of, of creating these organizations? Yeah, I don't know if I get the high of a lot of entrepreneurs who are like, woo, 
Uh, is coming. Yeah, let's go to Vegas, boys. Um, that's not really Series C. <laughs> uh, my my I'm joy... throw a Series C party one day. Even though I don't get one, uh, if I don't get one, I'm just gonna do it anyway. Just yeah. ball out. Oh, you must. not pay the bill. <laughs> <laughs> let me get four. Let me get five bottles over here again. I was like, where'd that guy go? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, oh yes. Yeah. Um, so like, where the joy comes from, um, the the consequences, and like seeing kind of institutions that I've created and helped create kind of resonate and echo through the world. Like a very simple example is um, on my Facebook page. A lot of my students are now connected, and some of them were born in Somalia. Others, you know, were in Ethiopia. Others are in Congo, and kind of through the journalism programs I, I helped establish they're all like connected and they're all like helping each other and helping each other in their careers and grow like that right and that's you know it's because it's often like hard to like quantify like what's your significance <laughs> in the sense that like a straight corporate cash flow sure. sense has um but when you see those connections and you like realize that yeah i was the linchpin and like all that effort created that linchpin right hub that allowed this other Kind of to me, like almost impossible things to occur. Um, it that, is. I mean, really it is impossible. Even me. even in that example, you know, I think about uh, like I was able to do a project in Africa a few years ago, and you know, it was helping to implement a UN policy for persons with disabilities. Um, and the the number of dangers that were expressed by that group by even just showing up <laughs> to this thing, and this was like a continental conference, so about thirty five countries were represented. And there's serious danger for people that want to change the system or report, you know, injustices or whatever they even want to report on from whether it's their perspective as a woman, even in some cases. Um, how do you how do you navigate those sensitivities from a teaching perspective? Obviously, everybody has a story to tell in some case. Mm-hmm. But, yes, the journalism tactics of like this is how you craft a story. But here's how you, you know, survive. Yeah. So there's. A few a few things I've noticed. Um, the more stable a, a country is, the more you can do like a group program. Like, all right, we'll have an after school program, and twenty students will go, and they'll learn journalism and tell their story. And some will pursue media careers, some won't. Um, that's fine. But then, like, the more danger you have, and the more unstable a, a place is, the higher the risks, obviously. And what's what I found remarkable is that there are people within those communities who view themselves as the storytellers and the ones who hold the powerful to account. Right. And they just exist. Like, no one said, hey, you can be a journalist, kid. You want to get in the newspapers? (laughs) Um, They're just kind of intrinsic within human society. And those people are far braver than, you know, I and most people I know. But they've, like, established that. A particular note are the journalist in Mogadishu who've just determine that they're going to die as a journalist and it's such an accepted fact right and like when i'm like trying to like communicate like story structure or like here's how this would look in english like they've made that determination and they're learning english to help right out of what's going on um i'm just kind of i can offer expertise i have and for the students who aren't quite as hardcore as a small journalist in mogadishu um my kind of guiding principle is that the Stories that will get someone beaten up or thrown in jail are the stories that will cost someone money. Um, so I, I try to never like do vicarious reporting. Like, hey, wouldn't it be great if you wrote about that uh, 
shipment of missiles that was going out late at night. Like, right. whoa, that would be a great story. For- um, no, and a lot of kind of just this is what life is like in my home stories mm, okay. have profound power around the world, particularly for somewhere like Africa, which, you know, it's this vast, heterogeneous, massive, wonderful, horrifying, fantastic place, but it's still like conceived of as Africa. Right. Right. But it's, I think it's what, 54 countries and yeah. within those 54 countries, they all have dozens and dozens at least of cultures. and place, da, da, da. Yeah. Um, so just by like saying, oh, I'm a Rwandan and here's how I make my living. It's like, oh, wow. Like one story that came, came to mind was uh, the, there are these seamstresses in Kigali, the capital of Rwanda, and they do the foot pedal sewing. Right. And it's just like a, a little shop, I think like five female employees, stuff like that. And I was showing it to a guy who grew up in Alabama. And he was like, oh, that's just like Birmingham when I was, I was a kid. It was like that. So Rwanda – today yeah was like 70 year ago america and like that was like a, a really cool connection well, that's and interesting something too. You considered and yeah because you said i mean even when you were kind of rattling off the list of places and i wrote this down you're like and south central and like you know these these places that are right around the corner from us but you're also going to you know these far regions of the world um what are some of the similarities you see in terms of you know homegrown storytelling at least from the the Drew Tiziano project perspective. Uh, the the regions that don't like share the story, it, it's often from an external thing of like, oh, I, I can't tell the story, and it's like, of course you can. Like, here's here's a smartphone and download your Instagram app and build right. a following and whatever. But there's just a, a belief, I guess. It's the belief of my inability to alter this situation or my or or also a, a lack of faith that like someone will come and help and another example of this is uh, I've taught journalism on Skid Row in downtown LA and I've done a few programs but the one I, I did more recently was there's this group of people who are working full time and they're in family units but they're just completely broke right. and so they live in kind of I think like four families to a unit with a shared kitchen type of thing. Wow. Um, and so I was trying to get the – it was all going pretty well and the, the student was doing a fantastic job and he really learned reporting. And I was trying to connect him to a UCLA scholarship, which is like worth about like what, 200 grand, like a full ride yeah. through UCLA. And he just didn't believe that like there was more money available to pay for his education than he had ever seen in his entire life. Right. And again, that, that's a belief, and it's a belief that's been really hammered in through experience. Um, but those beliefs and like what's possible and what's out there um, that are kind of externally, yeah. Um, well, how do you, and how do you, is there a method that you've discovered to help bridge that gap? Because I, I, I totally get it, right? Like, you know, I, I feel like in a lot of communities like that, it's like you don't know what you don't know. And, and when you skip that, you know, the second level, you're like, really? Like, there's, <laughs> this is like Mars, right. pretty much. And, and like, I know, I, like, hood wise, you talk about South Central, and like, when, if you talk about Hollywood to somebody in South Central, which is probably what, 15, 20 minutes away, mm-hmm. it sounds like a, like a distant, far off land, never have been there in my life or I've never been to the beach even though like it's right there so uh, I don't know as far as bridging that gap between possibility and belief systems um, my my personal thing is to kind of show by example and like 
and that's generally through personal mentorship and just like always I try to like check in with most of my former students on a weekly basis and then like and then their small success it's basically it's similar to how I train for boxing like you, or most people train for boxing you build up on small skill sets and once someone has a smaller success you can't take that away from them. like oh you got published in your local newspaper like right that, that's there like oh I've do 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 I've done that and it's like all right what can we do next and it's like oh you've published two stories and then those two stories had multiple sources and like oh you see like you're not that different from the pros right you can kind of see how your intelligence matches their intelligence and one of the things like i like about journalism the chaos it's going through is that anyone can get in now right so as long as you have the ethic and the integrity and you go for it right you're you're pretty much on par with the people who have the the deck stacked in their favor um and so that's my personal methodology is to Try to lead by example and then really kind of vaunt and showcase every gradual success and have a, an idea of what the person's kind of arc of their becoming could be. Like, right. all right, this will be your first victory, your second victory. Oop, you'll have a little thing there, but we'll get over that third, fourth, fifth, sixth. And then it's like, hey, you're eligible for the scholarship now. You want to go for it? You know, something like that. Nice. Um, so tell me about this, uh, this wardrobe of yours, which is, is awesome. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> we're we're going to get a picture of it, but I, just so you guys know, it's like, there's a, there's a vest, a pocket square down with the vest. It's all plaid and you're like you're three pieced up without the third piece. But I, I don't know. Like, is this, is this your everyday style? Like what? <laughs> y- yes, sir. It is. <laughs> what's, the, what's the Drew McGregor style for, uh, or, you know, methodology well, of style. Yeah, so I'm, I'm really big. Um, I'm about, you know, almost 6'10 and 290 pounds. Um, of of me, and so I had to give an important speech for this event called TEDx USC a few years ago. Yeah, um, that's kind of like a regional TED event, and and the one in USC was like their big flagship thing. Anyway, so I was like, oh, I have to give the speech, and so I have a friend who's a costume designer. And I was like, I, I need the suits. <laughs> Where you went costume design, <laughs> right? And she's like, all right. So she's got all these like great local contacts of people she uses for the TV shows and movies she makes costumes for her. right so she like we we had a day you know i treated her to sushi and she like we went around to downtown to like i think b and b and sons and got the fabric and then got the which is a lot of fabric it is yeah it's about five yards for sure <laughs> it was more for the suit and then we like went around and they're all these it's, it's what i love about la is you have all these great artists who can kind of do right. amazing things and then we we had the first suit and the speech went well and i was like whoa and being big, I can't like get off the shelf stuff anyway, and I was just like, "Well, now I because the big and tall stuff, just, you just look like a, right. a giant it's Steve like, Harvey." Here's your moo moo. Like, <laughs> right? Do, do you have a just put this sheet on? Wait, that, that's the racist. Do you have a business casual <laughs> moo <moo-moo>? moo? <laughs> business <laughs> casual moo moo. And so it was like it was liberating, and it's not actually more expensive than off the shelf stuff. So I was just like, "Oh man, I can I can wear anything I want," and then. The world of fashion became this like vibrant tapestry, and I was like, well, "Let's do it." So then, yeah, I just started. Anytime I had like another important speech to give, I'd like make another suit for it through with this methodology. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah well, I want to take a peek into your closet one day. Yeah. Just to, I probably can't fit anything, but just just to see. <laughs> um, why did you make a robot? Um, why did I make a robot? Okay, so. <laughs> While I I was doing conflict photography for, for a bit, and you see kids who've lost limbs and have been blown up, and you're like, well, that's terrible. And then, but it's like, what can you do about? Because landmines are these horrible things, and there's like they're they're there and they're impenetrable and they're right. terrifying. And it's like just like imagine being a child and afraid of the earth you walk on growing yeah. up. Like 
go down that kind of empathy thing. And then so that that just it bothered me. It was like, God, how come how come these things are still killing children from the, like conflicts that ended decades ago? And so a bit after that, a few years, I was asked to be a judge on this thing called the Robot Film Festival. And the Robot Film Festival seeks to showcase benevolent human-machine interactions. Like one of their slogans is, what if Skynet loved us? You know, like we'd have, <laughs> okay. a, you know, we'd have a different Terminator film. Um, like, right. Hey, humans, get along and I'll help you get along. Um, and I, I was really moved by that ethos. And so I wrote a short film that um, was based on this organization called a Popo, which trains rats to sniff for landmines. Um, people use dogs usually, but dogs are cost like tens of thousands of dollars right. to train them. They're trained in Germany, and then they're subject to tropical diseases. Oh, but you know, rats can be "quote unquote" locally sourced. Yeah, rats they can survive anywhere. Yeah, and they're just like, oh, I'm a I'm next. A rat. Next would be roaches searching for. We could. For, we could. Yeah, yeah, see, yeah, it's, it's roach training program. Mm. It's my Kickstarter. <laughs> So, in this, so in the short film, the robot um, works with a rat. They, it's a love story between a rat and a robot, and they guide humans out of a minefield. And then my an idea was to kind of make the movie and have it be an inspiration to engineers because right. I, I think narrative really is important to engineers, even though they don't kind of create it. But it was like Star Trek inspired people to make a tricorder now. Like that's one of the yes. X prizes, yes. like the tricorder X prize, and that's from the Star Trek thing. So like taking that in mind, I was like, hmm, what if we could uh, make a movie that would inspire engineers to help solve the landmine crisis? And in the process of making the movie, we had a kind of functional prototype. Were you thinking about that when you like when you wrote the script? Were you thinking like, ah, well, I wonder if somebody will read this and an engineer will make it? Yes, or, that was like the kind okay, of the intention. All right, then um, well done. Yeah. <laughs> Continue. And, and then, so, yeah, so doing a movie we had two two roboticists and like me and then my producer had worked in Cambodia a while and we had this prototype so it was just kind of like let's just do this and then I turned it into a an organization that does advocacy education in robotics and I've come to kind of learn robotics through this even though I didn't have a specific engineering background and it's like a fascinating wonderful world so now I'm probably going to be testing uh, this robot that came from that movie with the rats. Does the robot have a name? Uh, Piper. Oh. Yeah, right? I it's, like it's it. It's adorable. Yeah, it is. Well, yeah. And what was the rat's name? Um, I haven't named the rat. Oh, okay. That's fine. Uh, unnecessary at this question. point. No, because it, it does like call forth all sorts of... Odd, is Piper... Lo- wait, which one is the male and female? Right. It's like, do you have to have a gender? Like, yeah. Like, what would robots look like if we could conceive of ourselves they were without anthropomorphic. genders? Um, things like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's... It's yeah, it's kind of going along, and it's basically wouldn't it be nice to have a thousand dollar robot that can help map landmine fields, and that's what this thing is, and it's coming into existence now, and it's all from that kind of screen screenplay. <laughs> I, I I I don't understand your capacity, <laughs> like you know what I mean? Like it, it's you, obviously high energy individual, um, and stature wise, you're large, so you know, but the ability to achieve these multiple levels of success of multiple moving parts of multiple <laughs> projects uh-huh. and companies uh-huh. um you know what's your is there a technique or what's your sort of uh, i don't know source of existence <laughs> um I, I love my friends and like you know this isn't like i'm the one man band sure like there's everything we're describing has involved the effort of you know thousands of people um to, to a certain point so yeah i just i love doing things with friends and i do things communally and then 
it just so happens I'm just like, wow, we can turn this community into like a longer term thing. Um, right. Yeah. And when did like you know what do you? I, I would imagine there's in between the successes there have been some starts and fits of other things. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you gauge? When to continue with something, right? Yeah. Or you 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 spot a you know, potential in something, or maybe you spot a potential in a thought, and then it's just not working out the way you thought it would. Mm-hmm. Do you continue to try and fix that thing, or do you move on to the next? Like, what's your filtering process? Uh, that's something I've had to learn, and I'm, I'm finally just kind of getting the hang of it of like the non banging one's head in the wall. And right. basically, what it is is you you need to learn when this something is no longer your personal like even 50% passion. Right. And then who could do my job better than me? And then talk to that person who I feel could do the job better than me right. to replace me in my position. Like I, I view it like now I view it as a huge success that I have all these hats on my head and every time I can give a hat away, that's a triumph, right? That's a triumph of success because right. it means an institution is developing and the hat that's given away is the seed that will make that institution grow and grow. It's like grow. the Tom's model of entrepreneurship. You get a hat, give a hat. Give a hat, give a hat. Get a, you get a hat when you start the thing. But it's my get- hat I'm giving away. It's not the Tom's thing of like, hmm, well, we close. have the shoddy shoe that we get to. They're doing backpacks now for bullying. Uh, backpacks for bullying? Yes. I think bullies have enough resources. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Touche, sir. Um, no, that, that and that's interesting. How... Um, how hard of a lesson it was that for you to learn as far as, you know, because it's your baby, you know, and it's like right. you're, you're giving it away and entrusting it with. Um, and this, I learned a lot of this from, from boxing. It's ultimately about your vanity. You know, it's like, am I my company? Because it's me. Right. Um, and no, it's not. It never was you. It was always the community. And what I was able to offer was like inspiration, a bit of chutzpah. But it's ultimately be the community tribe, however you want to phrase it, right. that kind of makes things go forward together in the long run. Um, and that was just kind of overcoming a lot of the tech propaganda of like, these are the idols. Right. <laughs> Worship them. <laughs> they have made our world. And it's like, they're they're good. They're great. Right. Um, but they do require teams of thousands of people to right. implement a vision. And what is your role as a leader? What is your role stepping back from leadership and knowing when your talents have kind of reached their capacity. What is what is your, I don't know, your superpower as a leader? Uh, I make other superheroes. I just tweeted that the other day. I said, true power is making others, is the ability to make others powerful. You're precocious. Yeah. <laughs> no, precocious? It, it is. Um, yeah, that's kind of how I view it. I'm just like, you, you're a superhero, but you have this like psychological weight on you. It's like, let's remove that weight. And it's like, See the amazing things you're now doing. Like, yes, let's rock. Look at me. It's like you're starting to glow and just <laughs> looking at your hands. Uh, what, I, don't, I mean, you mentioned thousands or tens of thousands of people um, and all these people, some of them I would imagine need to be paid. Mm-hmm. So wh- how do you go about sourcing, funding, and, you know, really doing the business side of yeah. the the creative idea? It's still, that's still an issue. We're not at the point yet. Um, like the Titanium Project, for example, is currently in hibernation. Um, right. Because- we had come to be on a grant by grant business model and as a not-for-profit that's really difficult for right. like a long-term thing um so that that's currently in hibernation and a lot of the team are like going on running other things and doing spectacular stuff so uh, beyond like independent wealth kind of 
doing that. Sure. I, um, I'm not quite sure what the model would be for new media journalism, but lots of other people <laughs> have wondered this yeah. as well. Um, and there's so yeah, it's just finding the right model for each one. But right. nothing nothing we're discussing is like funded at a level where I'm like, yeah, this is great. No, I just but, you know just but you know but just this idea of like, okay, yes, there are these highs and lows in terms of success or just people jumping on board as a passion, you know, uh, opportunity um, and, and empowering those people to have the experience of working with the Tiziano project, which I've heard about for years, by the way, oh, yeah? uh, Mar Abrams is a, yes. is a good friend incredible. of mine. Yeah. Um, and so she first mentioned it to me and then it was like this domino effect, like everywhere I was going, I was like, what, who, what, what is this thing? So thank you for explaining it. <laughs> um, uh, you've mentioned boxing a few times. Uh-huh. So, um, how did you come into boxing? Um, cause you don't need to fight anybody like right. you just you so can try to be picked on man um <laughs> I, get you I, one of those backpacks i got a bit traumatized after doing some photojournalism in eastern congo and i came back to la and kind of the nature of my trauma um i think people would call it ptsd but i call it shell shock is that my emotional spectrum had shifted so if it wasn't like a kid waving a gun at me i just couldn't feel anything and this really wait so there were kids waving guns at you there were kids waving guns at okay me, yeah. um and far worse things than that uh and so what what this did was i was just like completely desensitized and i would like be with friends and they're watching some movie or something they're laughing i would fake the laughter and when that happens it's like when people listen to the show by the way right (laughs) worse um (laughs) and then I, i so i knew something was wrong and it wasn't like a conventional therapy thing like well my mother didn't love me enough so i'm gonna talk to you about this doctor um and I had heard about the sport of chess boxing before, and I already could play chess, so I was just like, I'm, I'm doing this. Um, and when I do something, I search for a hero. So now, how good are you at chess? Is it like, are you... I'm, I'm very good. I'm attempting to become a master, and then that's I'm treating it like a martial arts. So I do like daily training now and stuff like that. Nice. Um, um, the upper percentiles of humanity, I'm in there. Um, yeah, so I ended up like writing an email to George Foreman, and I would just like went to his website like here's what I'm trying to do again when you're like in that emotional condition you'll do things like right. that makes sense to me uh, anyway so George wrote back this like very concise wonderful three paragraph thing of how one becomes a champion boxer I'm like wow so when George Foreman like sends you an email it's just like an act of some have you framed power. that and put it anywhere like um, I haven't it framed it yet because yeah. it is an email form it's not him but yeah it's, it's I cherish same, it. same difference right right anyway so like part of George's thing was. Go find a great trainer. So I'm like, oh, great trainer. Uh, so I you know, do a little Google thing and come across a wild card gym in Hollywood, which is where you know, Pacquiao trains yep. and all that, which I, I didn't know any of this at the time. Five bucks a day, right? Isn't uh, that the- yeah, it is, yeah. So I, I go up there, and the person I speak to first is actually Freddie Roach, who's Pacquiao's trainer, and I, I don't know who he is. And I'm just like, <laughs> I'm here to chess box, where you like move Is the manager around. here? <laughs> and he's like, rah, rah, and he like points me to this other trainer. I'm like, I'm here to chess box. Like, all right. And the fighting community was like really great, and I just started training. And then I, when I started to spar, uh, I still remember the moment I got hit in the ribs and I felt pain again. And it was such a relief, like coming out of the ocean after you've almost drowned. Like, huh. ah, I can feel again. Um, and then I just kept it up. And that wasn't like a complete you know, recovery or anything, but it was like much, much better than feeling nothing and being damaged in that way. 
And then this guy flew in from Germany. Um, there are a few organizations that do chess boxing around the world, right. and we fought, and I won by checkmate in the fifth round, and the LA Times sent four reporters, and they put me on Carson Daly right away, and it became a thing. And I realized that um, kind of the, the nature of how I had come into the sport is something I could share. So for further events, we would do like chess boxing for charity. My fighting moniker is the fighting philanthropist, right? Right. And so that's what we do. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a movement. And it's really beautiful to see it kind of grow and be beyond me now. And like it's going to be taught, it's going to be taught in elementary school in the fall. And because people see it's like utility of yeah. mixing kind of the aggression with the contemplation and focus of a chess well, also yeah. you know boxing is a very cerebral sport and I think most people don't realize that like Sugar Ray Leonard was a guest on the show and oh, like wow. he's fantastic right and um, uh, shameless plug to previous episodes guys mm-hmm. but no but it, it, it's a really brilliant sport um, even even more so uh, like I like I've been a martial artist for years and like I would say even because it's a little bit more calculating than than um, than most things so like what do you see as the I don't know whether it's a cerebral bridge or just a spirit I don't know how you connect the two practices in the same moment um in terms of the prep, they both require obsessive discipline. I think that's something they have in common. And in the moment, it's the art of it is switching between the two. Um, because in the case of boxing, if you're thinking, then you're going to get smashed in the head. Uh, right. Because it creates a brief disconnect between your mind and your body. Like, hmm, what's – oh, oh, he's going to throw a left hook. Yes, I can see his shoulders moving. Yes, I was right. He's going to throw um, – right? But for the chess, you need to – not be pure instinct and kind of move into the chess frame of mind. And that's that's a different state. And so you do like a what I've learned um, through all this experience is you do this like, like and so I teach you like in the nose, out the mouth, mm-hmm. and like really lower your heart rate, just kind of like you would see in a samurai film, same thing. Right. And then you're on the chess board and then you, you do your chess round and then you return to the boxing and then you have to get back into that instinct mode uh, like one I, I was fortunate enough to train with a world champion named Lehman Brewster and he kind of took my boxing to the point where it was jazz where you learn these techniques through repetition but if you do the same move over and over like your opponent will read that and then counter your move right so what he taught me was to kind of like imprint that through like doing the same move once or twice and then switch up for the third so it, it was almost like improvisational jazz from hmm. instinct with these kind of techniques that he had learned from his trainers and stuff like that. And that's when that boxing became like the art of it. Granted, one can get severely damaged before that thing occurs. Yes. Um, so that's... Yeah, most the, the jazz gr- musicians don't end up uh, with brain damage. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and that's always been a thing because you'll see like these punchy fighters at the gym. It's just like, oh, man. But yeah, like the, the, the champs and the people who have great defense are right. kind of fine. Um, so what... Uh, what um Outside of the, you know, the PTSD or shell shock kind of um, therapeutic application of what you experience, 
Have you been able to apply any of what you've learned through chess boxing in your other endeavors? Right? You know, are there any principles of the game where, where you learn to be aggressive or, you know, more, you know, cerebral or, you know, how do you how do you apply the sciences to your, you know, your business practices? Yeah, I like nothing's as bad as it seems in the business world, right? Like it just isn't because you're not being hit in the face, right? It's just like, all right, we'll get through this. We'll get through this round. Right. And once we're through this round, um, we need to refocus our business. And that's similar to the contemplation of chess, where it's like, okay, we just went through something bad. It was a whirlwind. We got hit. Right. Urgh, what are we going to do now? Because we're still here, and I think we can improve our position, and we can come together as a unit far better than we could previously. And then that kind of the chess part of it. And I'm always trying to go for a checkmate in my chess game because for me it's like doing math at the end of a gun in public it's just like it's uncomfortable and I want to win as quickly as possible right um, that might affect my long term strategic thinking but I think it's pretty useful particularly for like a post quote crisis thing in the business world so it just makes you like tougher and more agile and more more confident that things will be okay. Right. And I, I think that gets shared with the organization. Like, all right, come on, we, we can get through this. <laughs> it's not, it's not get like up, get up off the ground, stop crying. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, that's uh, that's awesome. So, I mean, uh, through all these endeavors, and I know we probably have only touched a small percentage of them, um, what, uh, what do you want people to know Andrew McGregor for? What, like a, it's kind of like a, I don't know, like a tombstone style. Like, <laughs> yes, the here lies. I was here, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so will you be? No. I want my tombstone to say, "Not really did," <laughs> or like dot dot dot. <laughs> <laughs> to be continued. <laughs> but no, <BRB>, like lol. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, or, re- or we'll return in five minutes. Uh-huh. <laughs> to leave a sign on. <laughs> no, but like I don't know if. Um, because you've encountered so many people, you know, I had a conversation on the phone a little bit earlier. We were talking about like, oh, you know, what does this company or this individual want to leave as a legacy? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, another way of phrasing it, I would say something like, you know, what do you want people to take from you? You, you know, with, you know, with an Andrew McGregor encounter, what do you want people to walk away with? Whether it's you directly or uh, an encounter with one of your you know, projects and endeavors. Um, I, I I want them to take away, and I think this often happens, like, I can do this. I can do it. Right. Um, it's like, oh, wow, you you brought chess boxing to North America and, like, have, are now teaching it in schools. It's like, that's absurd. And, right. Like, if you can do that absurd thing, like, oh, I can totally do my third-party vending machine mobile play. Like, that won't be a problem. You know, it's like, right. whatever your dream is, like, I can, I can do it. Yes. Yes, and I can do it. How much of... How much of what you attribute to your success is serendipitous? Because a lot of it is like, oh, I walked into this thing and then this thing happened. Like it, it right. just kind of magically came together versus the, you know, being deliberate and saying, all right, we need to do X, Y, and Z. Right? There's, and I think that's also where that aggression comes in versus like the relaxed and responsive version of yeah. Uh Being in Los Angeles is pretty helpful for that. There's a kind of scrappy entrepreneurial nature to a lot of this city that's be predicated on the film industry, right? Because um, I have this belief that major industries affect their metropolitan areas, like Wall Street kind of defines New York in a lot of ways. That's right. like DC, the, the nature of the industry is power, right? And then so LA is the entertainment industry, and within the entertainment industry, it's a project-by-project 
thing, basically, sure. unless you're like accounting at Warner Brothers. Your jobs end like every six months, and yeah. you need to look for work again. So within within like that scrappiness, it's like, hey guys, we can do this, and it's not as big of a deal to like start a company as it would be in like the Midwest or yeah it's funny you say that because I, I mean I grew up in Detroit and you know my first job out of college I worked at Chrysler and I remember when I was like I'm gonna go to LA <laughs> and, and you know, there were men who had been there for like 15 20 or more years and it looked like me like I was a like a blue turtle like it was, <laughs> it's like you what like what you're gonna leave you sure <laughs> I'm like yeah I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure but I experienced exactly what you're talking about right like you know when I got my first writing job there was one day we went in to pick up our checks and there was a letter stapled to the check and all the writing staff had been let go. And mm. it was like, don't come in on Monday. <laughs> like, really? They're like, you can fire people like this? And, you know, the only way to survive is to, you know, figure out what you're going to, because you want to eat, right? And, like, you may take that thing that's interesting or cool or whatever just be just to tide you over. And some people get stuck. Like, I don't know if, and not to derail or anything, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I know some people get stuck in that accounting job because they, you know, they were an actor or, you know, some creative spirit and they had an accounting skill and they moved to L.A. to, you know, flex the creative side, but then they get stuck. I don't know if you've experienced that, like in the, in the people that you've come across and, and if there's any like techniques you're like, hey, here, here's how to get out of it. Yeah, uh, L.A. can be pretty harsh, but also pretty wonderful. Um, and I just. When, when I've seen people kind of do that, and it's it's ultimately kind of a loss of faith. And you know, maybe you weren't supposed to be Johnny Depp, and that just wasn't in the cards. Right. But then I don't even think Johnny Depp was supposed to be Johnny. Depp. Right? It's just like, whoa! <laughs> like, this happen? Like, shh, shh. Exactly. Keith Richards, don't ruin this for me. Wait, oh, no, sorry. Uh, along those lines, there was a um, there was a thing about Michael Sarah, and it, it said he looks like a guy who showed up at an audition with his friend, and nobody told he didn't tell the guys that he was not an actor, and he just kept going with it. <laughs> it's like he's that guy. Uh, I thought that story was going to be funnier than it was. Mm. Continue. Oh, right. So uh, just where. As long as you're doing your your craft or your art with complete integrity, you know, like the city will be kind to you and reward you. Like I, I went with chess boxing with extreme discipline, just as if which I can now am like a pro fighter, and that's my career trajectory. And because of that, the fighting community embraced the concept, right? And like supported it and like participated. And if I hadn't done it with that integrity, like because I've met with. People around the country are like, "Hey, I want to do a chess boxing club." I'm like, "All right, like, just punch them in the face." You need to right? fight, right? and <laughs> right. they're like, "Well, I just, they just like kind of want to let go and hang out at a gym and suggest it." And the right. people at the gym are like, "What? The, what are you talking about?" Like, but if you actually like do it and you have that integrity about it, then you're going to get those results, right. and you just have to not be afraid of like failure is the wrong word, but of like not becoming that thing. You have to have the knowledge that as long as you're doing your art, yeah. you are that thing and that the money and quote unquote success that you're wanting or not wanting or think you deserve more of is separate and in some ways irrelevant to you going at your art with the integrity your art des- the art deserves and that you deserve to be within that realm. That's supremely well said. <laughs> Uh, and I don't, I don't think I've ever used the word supremely on this on this show, except the time I ordered a pizza. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, so the show's called Innovation Crush. What do you see out in the world that you are kind of personally crushing on that you you know I, uh, that you may want to even put a new hat? <laughs> yes. On uh, there's a 
a magical thing I'm doing now called Good Bar, and it's a philanthropic bar. So it functions just like a normal bar, except all the revenue goes to mostly local charities. Um, and I, we're trying to make it so it can be scaled as a chain. So, like, you know, you'll just like you would go to your normal happy yeah. hour, except you're supporting your community that way. That's awesome. Yeah. So we're starting with a series of pop up events um, in LA, in downtown LA, this September, and we're going to seg the pop up events into a brick and mortar place. And the pop up events are doing being done with a gallery called Think Tank. And the idea is that we'll grow the community to the point where. Uh, we can then launch a brick-and-mortar good bar, the first one being in downtown. It's kind of a proof-of-concept business. And then we can just have these, like, charitable fundraising machines kind of pop up wherever. That's brilliant. Yeah. Um, That's the new hat. Let's do that idea. Uh, <laughs> Go for it. You, signed, you already signed the release form. Uh, <laughs> I just – no, I've signed away my ideas. No, that's that's um, that's fascinating. So uh, it, what I wanted to ask you also, what do you consider – your biggest success so far? Um, just the the community and the people I've known. Um, that, that's the the beautiful part for me is that I've been able to interact with so many courageous, brilliant, wonderful, self sacrificing, amazing people in the world. That those people exist, and that I've been able to even like talk to them, much less collaborate on a huge right. caper, is really meaningful to me, and I. I just cherish that daily and almost every minute. Yeah. And speaking of collaboration, I, I read that um, you like a few years ago you were working with the RZA on a, a, like a sub brand of the. Working with might not be the way to put it. Um, I was, <laughs> I was like, in you his... sent them an email and asked them a question. No, I that. Um, <laughs> there's a there's an organization called the Hip Hop Chess Federation that does work with the RZA, um, and they're based in the Bay Area, and they're they're similar ish. They do kind of martial arts and chess training um, for people in difficult neighborhoods and they put on this kind of celebrity chess tournament and I got to play you know, like guy, there was an actor from like Sons of Anarchy and stuff like that oh wow yeah it's cool and then Rizzo was there and so we met um, and we were supposed to kind of work on doing chess jujitsu and kind of expanding that right um, and then Rizzo had a art exhibit at the World Chess Hall of Fame in St. Louis and so yeah, there there was like a similar movement, but I wasn't like, hey, Mr. Rizzo, <laughs> what are we doing today? So, um, but yeah, just kind of like similar things of using chess and martial arts to benefit communities that need it. And we're still on that path, but Got I don't it. directly. You know, hanging out with the Wu-Tang Clan is what it's pretty, you know. Not since the chess tournament, no. <laughs> By the way, Method Man was in the Amy Schumer movie. You should check that out. Oh, okay. It was a weird cameo, but it worked. <laughs> just like, why are you uh, dressed as an owl? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He was like a nurse with a Jamaican accent. Um, not that, spoiler alert. <laughs> has nothing to do with the story. It ruins the catharsis. <laughs> uh, complete this phrase for me, please. Yes. Innovation to me is... Sharing our integrity. Elaborate. I'm sharing our integrity. Um, because there there are a lot of things that people can do well, and I I think up till now, there historically the the model was like patent things and get the IP. Like if you examine the Microsoft Corporation, right, right, and the way they handle themselves and like you know licensing Windows OSs and blah blah, blah. and now they're forced really to go open source, right. And it's it's so it's about sharing that thing, but the thing that they've done required a lot of integrity to get there, 
And so I, I do think if people perceive themselves as educators, life becomes much more fun and convivial. And so, but the integrity part is like what people take pride in what they've learned, be you a software engineer or an elementary school teacher or like a public policy person. And so if you can share that integrity, you're sharing what, what's sacred and what you believe in. And I think it helps the individual express what's sacred to them, but also benefit someone else from kind of granting or blessing or sharing their integrity. Yeah, sharing their integrity. That's fantastic. Um, thank you. Mm, thank this, you. This has been this has been awesome. Uh, how can people find you on the interwebs or in the streets? Uh, my website is mightykingdrew dot com. Um, I'm not terribly active on Twitter, but you can reach out to me there with like you know at mightykingdrew. Um, and yeah, or you can like check out the various organizations and things like that. But yeah, that, and that's that's the way. Mighty King Drew. Yeah. Uh, thank you, man. This is this has been awesome. Hmm. Uh, I hope you enjoyed yourself. It was lovely. Thank you, uh, Maria. Did you enjoy yourself? I did. Okay, great. Um, anybody? And there's nobody else in here. <laughs> Everyone, this has been another uh, amazing installment of Innovation Crush, and uh, we will talk to you next time. If you like listening to comedy, try watching it on the internet. The folks behind the Sideshow Network have launched a new YouTube channel called Wait For It. It's got interviews with comedians like Reggie Watts, Todd Glass, Liza Schleichinger, Schleichinger, I've been friends with her for 10 years, one of the funniest people out there, and I still have a hard time with the last name, Liza. Our very own Owen Benjamin, that's me, takes you on a musical journey down internet rabbit holes and much more. You don't have to wait any longer. Just go to youtube.com slash waitforitcomedy. There's no need to wait for it anymore. Because it's here. And it's funny. And I love you. A few days ago, Brooke Tudine posted an inspirational quote on her wall that got 17 likes and 3 comments. Thumbs up, Brooke. Geico also wants to make a comment. In just 15 minutes, you could save hundreds of dollars on your car insurance by switching to Geico. And nothing says inspiration better than saving money. Well, except for those posters that say things like teamwork, excellence, and make it happen. Hashtag keep climbing. Hashtag savings. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.